University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Slovakia, where I lived for nine years, the driving signs were a little bit different. John told you about one that he experienced a couple of, uh, couple of weeks ago. I want you to look at this sign and tell me what you think it means. This is a sign from Europe. Anybody know what you're supposed to do with that sign when you're driving? Anybody? It's not a stop sign. Abigail knows. <laughs> Anybody else? Tega, do you know? <laughs> for those of you who visited or driven in Europe, you might know. They don't use signs with words on them a lot because the boundaries of languages are so much different than they are here. This sign means you have the right of way. So if I come up to an intersection, I know that I can keep going. It's like the opposite of a stop sign. And if I stop, it becomes very confusing for the people around me. So when you're coming up to a road, you know. This sign is extremely important for driving there. But if you don't know the key, it just looks like a yellow diamond, right? The fourth gospel of John talks about signs. We might call them miracles, but John calls them signs, reminding us the actual act is much more than it appears. The miracle is not just the miracle. It's something bigger. It's something deeper. We want to focus on the why of the miracle when we look at these. What does it show us about Jesus? What does it say about ourselves in relation to Jesus? Why would Jesus have done this, and why would John have included it? Now, before I want to go any farther, I want to acknowledge that John, not the Gospel John, my husband John, who preached two weeks ago, also used this same scripture. He used it as a jumping-off point to talk about all the signs in John. Today, we're going to explore a little bit deeper and specifically look at this sign. It was intentional, and I hope you'll get something new and different from it today. So let's read our scripture. John 2, starting with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to me and to you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the person in charge of the banquet. So they took it. When the person in charge tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, that person called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. May God add God's blessing to the reading and the hearing of God's word. So, the setting of this story is a wedding. Have any of you ever been to a disastrous wedding? Thankfully, I have not been to one, nor was my own wedding a disaster. But when I googled disastrous weddings, I found some 
really great stories. A lot of them I will not share with you today. Brides' dresses catching on fire, grooms leaving at the last minute, brides never showing up at all, all kinds of crazy things happening, or the entire wedding party falling into the water while doing the photos. I'm so glad that was not my wedding. But in this scene, in John, the bridegroom's family has run out of wine, a staple for a proper wedding of that time. Now let's take another sign as an example here before I go any further. This sign is on Leeward, and it says University Baptist Church. It's just right out, right out there, I think. Yeah. Um, to some, they might look at this sign and think, oh, that's such a pretty sign. Look at all the green grass, at the oak trees. Before I moved here, I looked at this sign on the internet, and I said, oh, it's such a pretty church. It's such a pretty sign. But to those of you who go here, you might look at that sign and think of experiences that you've had here. You might think about your spiritual walk. If you're a teacher in the MDO, you might think about your children and your job. Or you might look at that sign if you've had troubles here, if you have heartache. Somebody might pass by that sign and feel sad, or feel anxious. But each of us comes to that sign with a different perspective. And so we get something different out of it. We, we see it with different eyes. The signs from the Gospels of John are like this. We each bring different things to the situation. And so we learn different things from it. Now today we're going to look at a few of the people or groups of people that, have, that were at this event, at this wedding, and see how they might have been impacted by this sign, by this miracle, why it might have mattered to them, and in turn, what it might could matter to us. We'll start with Jesus. Here's Jesus. I love this picture of him. Look how happy, how excited, how just joyful he looks. He's gathered some disciples around him that he, just verses before, literally like five verses before, he, is when he calls the disciples. In fact, according to some translation, that's just two days after he's called his disciples. They're at this wedding, having a great time, minding their own business, so to speak, when Jesus' mother comes to him. Surely Jesus must have been looking around, trying to figure out what his ministry is going to look like. Maybe he's wondering or trying to figure out how to get things kind of moving along, like he's got his disciples, what's he going to do now? When I first started here at UBC, it mattered to me how I started. I wanted my first things to be meaningful. I wanted to help people see what mattered to me. I wanted to help point them to God. Andy gave me the opportunity to preach so that you all could hear me, you could hear more from me. I had the opportunity to meet with some of you individually with, over lunches or over dinners. And my first big thing that I was in charge of almost a year ago was planning and leading Kids Club in conjunction with the July Summer Gathering. Now, we just did Kids Club in June, and I will say I've learned a few things in this year for sure. In those first days, I was apprehensive. I was nervous, but I was also empowered. I was so many things. Could it have been that Jesus also was excited apprehensive, nervous, empowered, maybe all those things too. Was he enjoying the fellowship of these new friends? Or was he at a wedding trying to find out where could he show himself? Where could he really show up and help them see deeper things about their lives? How can he help them understand that he doesn't just want to change everything, but he wants to just make things fresh and make things new? He knows that just days before, he has promised that they will see great things. Is it time to make good on that promise, even a little bit? 
At first, he tells his mother that it's not the right time. This kind of time is not the time of day, like John talked about last week. It's a fulfillment of time. But he's watching and he's listening to his father and waiting for the right time, that time to do something of value and of importance. Sometimes it's hard to find ourselves in Jesus, isn't it? I mean, he was human, but also divine. And we're just humans trying to do our best. But I wonder if we might be feeling a little excited, apprehensive, nervous, empowered, or some other emotion as we contemplate the start of something new. Now let's look at Mary. Jesus and his disciples have been invited as guests to the wedding. Mary, who John does not call by name, but instead calls the mother of Jesus, is there as well, most likely helping the family in the back, making the wedding come off well. Mary somehow gets word that the wine is drying up. Now, this isn't a small problem, like I said. In this time, running out of wine would have been a huge shame on a family. Weddings were week-long events, and the family not having enough to serve the guests would have been, at best, humiliating. While Mary is mentioned by name many times throughout the other Gospels, many times, John only mentions the mother of Jesus two times, in this scene and at the cross. Almost like he's kind of, she's kind of bookending that Jesus ministry, brackets, so to speak. I find it interesting that Mary assumes that Jesus has some way to fix this problem. She's got a solution, her special son. Now, being a mom who loves my kids and sometimes thinks they can do it all, I'm drawn to this mother who asks her son for something, but he rebuffs her a little. He says, woman, it's not yet time. Now, I don't want you to hear this and think he was being rude to her. By calling her woman, he's, it's not like we would today, like, woman. But it's also not familial. He would not have called her woman as his mother. It was more like not familiar, not familial. So I feel for Mary. She sees a problem, wants to help, goes to the person that she thinks might fix the problem to be told it's not time. It was also likely a fairly large breach of social norms for her to even have gone to him during the wedding as a woman to a man. But she doesn't give up. She tells the servants, listen to him. Even with his response, she believes he can and maybe will do something about the situation. And he does. She backs off and gives him the freedom to act, but continues to trust his ability to act. Now, if we look at this theologically, we might ask questions like, why does God hold out on them at first when the need is so apparent? Or did she actually play a part in moving God toward generosity? It seems that her part in it may have moved Jesus toward compassion, toward divine action. Looking at this in a more practical way, moms and dads out there, some of those on stage, some of you who are who have grown children or growing up children, we've got to give our children the freedom to be themselves and to make their own decisions, but we also have to keep believing in the very best parts of them. We keep believing that they can act, and then we give them the freedom to listen to God's Spirit themselves. In parenting, as our kids get older, as I'm finding, as much as we'd like to tell them what to do, order their lives for them, it's their life and their connection to God that matters. We can foster that at this age, but then we have to trust 
that they're going to do the right things that they feel that God has called them to do. I'm going to warn you that's not an easy part of parenting, right? Those of you who have older kids, are there things in your life that you'd like to tell God how to fix? Maybe it's not the right time, or maybe you just pray that fervently and wait for that needle to move a little. Maybe you need to give your children the freedom to hear God's voice and obey God's timing and not yours. Or maybe we know someone who can fix a problem, and even though they rebuff us at first, they really do have a solution. We just need to encourage them toward action. Now let's look at the servants. I did not realize on the first few readings of of this, I want you to look again. The servants are the only ones who actually witness the miracle firsthand. They were the ones to fill the jar with water, so they knew it started out as water. So when it poured out wine, they saw it as a miracle. They were the first one to glimpse the promises of Jesus. The world itself was about to change, and they got first sight of it. How amazing is that? In Luke, Luke tells us about shepherds who first heard the news of the newborn king, the lowest of the low. And John shows the lowest ones here present at the, wi- at the wedding to be the one to see Jesus' first miracle. In John's gospel, this is the inaugural event. I want to look briefly at Jesus' inaugural event in Luke. In Luke, the first big thing that Jesus does is preach to his hometown of Nazareth. He's quoting Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is, beco- is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set those who are oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's me, he says, it's me. I've come to do this. In this inaugural event in Luke, Jesus is preaching with his words, But I can't help but wonder if he's trying to say some of the same things through his actions in John. The servants have seen. They have been a part of this great miracle. God comes to the lowest. He celebrates with those who who others don't seem worthy. He, Jesus, has has been sent to proclaim relief to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed to bring joy to those who celebrate and allow the lowest to see it. One more person I'd like for us to explore today is the bridegroom. Now, I'm going to assume here that the bridegroom himself, whose family is hosting the event, likely probably doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes until this very delicious wine shows up. He's enjoying his food and his drink and his fellowship. What does this miraculous event mean to him? In some ways, it meant everything. Even though he might have only heard about the crisis after the fact, it meant everything. Have you ever had an experience like this? One where you only learn much later how God has been working things out for your good? Might God be working behind the scenes in your life in ways that you cannot even imagine? Are there ways that God is caring for and loving you that you might not even know yet? The church has often been called the bridegroom of Christ. How might God be working for our church's benefit in ways that we cannot fathom or understand? 
How does God want to help us understand abundance and joy in ways that have been hidden to us up to now? Are we sitting around drinking boxed wine when God wants to treat us to the expensive stuff? I love that Jesus' first sign in the gospel was a party. Jesus was not just sitting around in a room with his new disciples, boring them with talks and theological discussions. He was with them, celebrating and teaching through that celebration. I fear we've made Jesus into a much more mild-mannered and, frankly, boring person than he actually was. Like in the Luke passage, he wants to bring us life in all life's fullness. In the Old Testament, plentiful wine and food is a symbol of abundance. It's a symbol that we have been given more than we could ask or imagine. Now, I was tempted to stop at these four, but I'd like to explore just one more. And that's the steward, the person in charge. The steward is our man of reason. He didn't see the miracle happen, really, but he's the first to taste it. When he realizes the wine is of high quality, he doesn't assume it was a supernatural event. Rather, he tries to reason it out, figure it out. He's thinking of it practically. He's trying to reshape the events into something he can explain. Sometimes we look at miracles in the Bible and we say, well, yeah, those are pretty cool things, but stuff like that was happening all the time. Those kind of things don't happen anymore. I'm pretty sure water did not magically turn into wine on a regular basis back then. This was an extraordinary event, and it wasn't something that could be explained. It shattered conventional explanation and expectation, both then and now. One of my favorite parts of worshiping with the Roma in Slovakia is that they see the miracle and God in everything. The weather's nice on a day that they want to be outside. Must be God. And I like to reason things. I like to talk about the reason why things are the way they are. But the Roma taught me that there's a lot of miracle in this world that we're missing because we're trying to reason it away. Are we trying to explain away the amazing things that God is doing in our lives? Are we trying to make sense of things that we just can't make sense of? These are just a few of the characters in this story. But what about the disciples who were there to have fun and ended up bearing witness to a scene that, as the Bible said, helped them believe in Jesus. What about the guests who probably never knew what happened except for that the wine just kept getting better and better? But were the benefactors of such extravagance? Where do you find yourself in this story? How can you learn from this sign? What can it point you to beyond just a cool party trick? Jesus is saying, I have come to bring life to your party. I have come to celebrate with you and show you that I care about the things that matter to you. I have come to take the old, empty vessels used for religious things and make them new and full and flowing. I have come to show you that the most important among you might not understand, and the lowliest among you just might witness something that cannot be explained. As we move into our time of response this morning, I'm going to read the passage again. Where did you find yourself in this story as I talked through it? What person or idea sticks out to you? I want you to keep that in your mind. 
And listen again as I read the scripture, just keeping that idea or that person in your mind through the whole scripture. I encourage you to close your eyes and be present at the scene. John 2, starting with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to me and to you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the person in charge of the banquet. So they took it. When the person in charge tasted the water that had become wine, they did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, that person called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Amen. As our time of response this morning, we're going to do what's called sharing the journey. I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes. I want you to turn to someone around you, and I want you to just tell them, as I read back through the scripture, who was it that you identified with? What can we learn from that person? What can, you, what can you draw from that? So go ahead, just take a couple of minutes to share with those around you what you ha- heard or saw. <laughs> 